Giannis, 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh my goodness. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriel Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you. Brendan, softball update time. Yeah. Are you ready for the, uh, we need a stinger again. Tim Leonard, our producer, come on, let's, let's kick up the production value here. Let's get a stinger noise for the softball update. We should make like a full screen graphic sort of thing. With some B-roll of us taking some swings. Sure. Maybe some canned shots of like us, you know, hitting the ball off a tee, looking like we're celebrating. Dug out B-roll, high-fiving. Yes, which it all occurs. Yeah. Because we're excellent at this. Right. Unfortunately, uh, we were heading into our first game together, you, me, and Tim. First time we've ever played together, all three on the same team. Yeah. Uh, because we've had to miss various games over the course of the season. And we started off the game pretty well. We're scoring some runs, and one of our teammates went down with injury. Uh, she was running to first, and I think her ankle... Yeah, twisted. rolled an ankle on the base. On first base, yeah. and went down, and was down for a few minutes, and then was helped up to her feet. And uh, when she was helped up to her feet, I started to give a little applause... Yeah, I had like I got two claps in there. Nobody else applauded. Was I in the wrong? I've been to a million baseball games, and that's what you do when somebody gets up to their feet after being down for a few minutes. I don't know if you're in the wrong, but it is volo softball, so I don't know so if if anything you should the be more same encouraging. Rules apply. If anything, you you should be more encouraging of somebody overcoming an injury because they're not getting paid out there. No, I, that's fair. I I don't know if it warranted. A clapping kind of response. Uh, why? What? It was just I, deadly quiet. Should we not applaud the the poor girl that fell down and is now helped to her feet? It's an odd gray area. It was very. It was very eerie. I will say, I did laugh to myself when you were the only one clapping. I really, and it was incredibly awkward. It was instinctive because I. She comes up and I'm like, and then I look around and nope, nope. It was deathly quiet except for my two quiet claps. Yeah. And then she sat on the bench and and was tended to by a doctor. So it was uh, it was uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, it also wasn't like not that any injuries are are fun by any stretch, but it like it, it was just a very somber mood. I don't think anybody was like, all right, yeah, good job. Get it. I don't know. Yeah. I think I think for uh, when you're more detached from the situation, it's more because we applaud professional athletes in general, and so that's yeah. a natural response, and that's the. Only thing you can kind of give in that instance, and when you actually know the person, is different. But I, I thought we'd have some kind of encouraging, I don't know, do know, noise. Am do I, teammates? I want to know if I'm in the wrong. But I feel like teammates don't usually clap. I think they do. I think they do occasionally. I, I'd have to go grind some tape. Yeah, grind some tape. I feel like we've seen shots of other teammates, like or op- opposing players. opposing players. Sure, especially if it's a bad injury and they're have to get up and yeah. You know, uh, I feel like time. a lot of the time that. The teammate is like, hey, goes up and in, in more of, you know, offering words of encouragement kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I, let's put this to the viewers and listeners. I, I do want to know if I was in the wrong there. Yeah. All right. We got a lot to talk about today. To close our show, we are going to have an interview that we did with Aberdeen Ironbirds manager Roberto Mercado, who won the Cal Ripken Senior Player Development Award this year. Got to talk to him last week. Interesting guy. Interesting conversation. Uh, but before that, Brendan... 
we are going to look back on the season that was on the Orioles farm system and give our all-prospect team. We're going to go position by position and give the guy that we think was the most standout prospect at that position across all levels of the organization. It's kind of difficult to define what a prospect was this year because some guys were prospects for most of the year then got called up at the very end, like a Kyle Stowers, a Gunnar Henderson. So it's going to be a gray area. So if you don't see your guy's name, somebody that you think should be there, let us know. But also, we were careful in defining prospect as somebody who, for the most, for the majority of the season, was a prospect. Didn't just start the season as a prospect and got called up. Like Kyle Bradish does not deserve to be on here because he wasn't a prospect for most of the year. Right. You have to be a prospect for the majority of the season. Yeah, and Kyle Stowers was kind of the one that was more of a gray area. Yeah. So he's going to fall under the category of somebody who doesn't make the starting team, but he's at least an honorable mention because he had a fantastic year. And he didn't finish the season as a prospect. Right. He was bumped out of the prospect rankings because he graduated, so to speak. So I don't think of him as a prospect anymore, and maybe that's recency bias, but he's not on our list. Yeah. Let's go position by position, start behind the plate, Brendan. And look at catcher. And this is an organization that debuted the best catcher in the American League, perhaps, for the next 10 or so years in Adley Rutschman, if all goes well. But beyond that, not a whole lot of depth. You would have thought Creed Willems, maybe, before the season, would have fit into this category. He didn't have the best season. He hit under 200. He was beloved by a lot of fans in Delmarva, but you know couldn't really do a whole lot uh, offensively. He is still young. But I'm going to go with Samuel Basayo who is a recent international signee. He's just 18 years old, hit 279 with six homers and a 774 OPS in 43 Florida Complex League games. Now, he's the Orioles' number 12 prospect. And if you recall, he was the guy who signed for the second highest dollar amount in the Orioles' 2021 draft, or sorry, international class. So the Orioles invested a lot of money in him. I think it was $1.3 million. And he's 18, and he's barely getting any kind of game action. He was playing in extended spring training before he got those 43 games, but the future is still bright for this kid. Yeah, Basayo is exciting because obviously when you look at the state of catcher in the Orioles organization, it's Adley Rutschman and then some suitable backup at some point. And with Basayo, he's still a few years away from the majors, obviously. He hasn't even made it up to Aberdeen at this point. So... Delmarva or Delmarva yeah, yeah. as well. So for Pasayo, I think the hope is that in three, four years, whenever he gets closer to the majors, you're hoping that he becomes a suitable backup for Adley Rutschman, who is hopefully at that point, you know, in his prime and still doing fantastic things. So you don't need Basayo to be the savior at the position in the organization because you already have that. But if Basayo can turn into a major league caliber catcher, a, it would be fantastic to have an in-house backup to Adley Rutschman, and B, it would be a great reflection of the new work that the Michael Elias regime is putting into the international market, and it would be a solid reflection of that. It would. Again, I think the position of backup catcher will probably be filled by veteran free agents yeah. over the next several years. I mean, you know, maybe for the next three years until the Orioles get somebody in their system who they think is worthy of being a major league backup catcher to Adley Rutschman. But until then, 
major league free agents are perfectly fine. You know, if you're going to pick a spot in your organization to be weak at right now, it's catcher because you already have a superstar in the big leagues. That's okay. Other guys that deserved mention here, I think Maverick Handley deserves a mention. Honorable mention for me. 24 years old. He hit 236 with 11 homers and a 769 OPS in 78 games at AA. He was the sixth-round pick in 2019 out of Stanford. He was one of the three guys out of Stanford that were taken in that class with Andrew Dashbaugh and Kyle Stowers. And he could be, maybe, if he goes up to Norfolk and then goes up to Baltimore at some point soon, the fourth member of that 2019 O's draft class to reach the majors. But I think he's a, a ways away. Yeah, and Cody Roberts was another one that I looked at not a fantastic season, but he did have a 749 OPS at Bowie in 73 games. He did have an OPS over 1,000 in seven games in Norfolk, so we'll see what Cody Roberts can do with that promotion. Jacob Nottingham, one that doesn't really fall under the prospect umbrella, but worth mentioning with a solid season, 759 OPS at AAA Norfolk in about 90 games. He just ultimately didn't get the backup job at the beginning of the year due in large part to the fact that he was right-handed. Anthony Benboom was left-handed. And yeah. if you were going to have a backup to Robinson Chirinos, you would have preferred to go right-handed, left-handed. So Benboom gets that job, and Nottingham just really wasn't able to find a way onto the Major League roster without an injury to either Adley or Chirinos. Next position is another one that is thin. And it's okay because they have Ryan Mountcastle up at the big league level. They have their first baseman of the future, but beyond that, this is probably the weakest position on the farm, wouldn't you say? I'd say so, but it's first base. It's yeah. not really a high-value position right. defensively. You can turn players into first basemen. You yep. can't really turn players into shortstops. Kobe Mayo is the name that always gets thrown around as somebody who could be a first baseman of the future. You're hoping that Kobe Mayo is still going to play a solid defensive third base down the line, but if third base is too crowded or Kobe Mayo just isn't really cutting it defensively at the hot corner. You can move him over to first base and he seems like he'd be a very good first baseman. So I'm not worried about the organizational depth at first base just because it's not a very high value position defensively. But my pick here was T.T. Bowens. Yeah. He won the Aberdeen Player of the Year Award. Honestly, a little bit surprising that Bowens never got promoted. He was putting up pretty good numbers in Aberdeen this year. 70, 768 OPS in 106 games. He did have a 376 on base percentage as well, which was impressive. The power numbers just weren't really what you were expecting out of a first baseman. Just seven homers on the year. But T.T. Bowens gets my vote. Do you know what the T.T. stands for? I think I do, but not off the top of my head. Terry O'Neill. Terry O'Neill. Well, O'Neill doesn't start with a T. Terry O'Neill <laughs> Bowens. <laughs> T.O. Bowens? I don't know. Uh, good for T.T. Bowens for winning also Aberdeen Ironbirds Player of the Year. Yes. Uh, because he did get that award at the end of the year. Yeah, a little bit surprising he never got the call. I felt like we kept going back to Aberdeen and seeing his him there. Yeah. And he just never, you know got the call up to to double a we did see several first basemen unfortunately have down years I, I think the Orioles probably were hoping I agree with you that if there's going to be one position if there's going to be one position you're going to be weak at in this organization in particular it's catcher because you have Adley but if there's going to be one position just in general that you could choose to be weak at it's first base because like you said that can be filled by 
a left fielder, a right fielder that you convert to a first baseman. And the hope is that you're so deep at so many other spots that you have to convert somebody to first base at some point. So I'm okay with them not having a whole lot of depth, but also T.T. Bowens does deserve a nod here because he was solid from start to finish. And from everything we heard from the Ironbirds, he was a pretty strong leader in that clubhouse and was their most consistent player from start to finish. Yeah, and I remember going with Tim Leonard to cover the Aberdeen Championship Series, and it was a big miss for Aberdeen to have T.T. Bowens injured for that series because he was a leader, as you said, Paul, both on and off the field and obviously was still with the team, was still in the clubhouse, but I think not having him in that lineup certainly didn't help the Aberdeen's Ironbirds' chances of getting that championship. One other first baseman who I think the Orioles probably were expecting a little bit more of was Jacob Teeter, who's 23, and this wasn't due to his fault. This was injury that shortened his season. Uh, He had 285 with four homers and an 810 OPS in 37 games with Aberdeen. So he was on the track to maybe not finish with Norfolk, but perhaps have a solid promotion after being with Aberdeen and get some time in Bowie, but never was able to realize that because of injury and finished the season on the 60-day IL, essentially. So the hope is that Jacob Teeter maybe can emerge as the next best first baseman uh, prospect. Yeah, Teeter's also hilarious, non-baseball related. He is just a very goofy dude Yeah, and also a very good baseball player. Another guy I want to shout out, again, not really a prospect, but Tyler Nevin was on the prospect list to begin this season and absolutely mashed in AAA Norfolk. Had an OPS over 860, obviously was in the majors for a bit, got sent back down towards the end of the year before getting the call up with a few weeks to go in the season. So again, Tyler Nevin, not really a prospect, but is at least worth a mention for a fantastic season. All right, now we get into the middle infield, and this is really where the Orioles have their most depth, I think you could say. In previous years, I would have said outfield, But with the way that they've drafted consistently and developed these infield prospects, I think you're looking at second base, shortstop, and third base as being the real strength of this farm system right now. And to start, I'm going to go second baseman Connor Norby is going to be my all-prospect team member here. He hit 279 with 29 homers that led the Orioles' farm system, 886 OPS, 16 stolen bases as well. He's the Orioles' number 11 prospect. I think those 29 homers are two more than Kyle Stowers hit last year when he led the farm system. I believe he finished with 27, which is crazy to say because if you look at Norby, he's not the biggest dude, he's not the strongest dude, and he's playing second base, so a fairly difficult you know, defensive position, one that you wouldn't expect a whole lot of power from. But maybe you, you're looking at a Jonathan Scope type, a, a second baseman who has a little bit of pop because those 29 homers are hard to ignore. Yeah, maybe a lot of bit of pop with, with Connor Norby and a really impressive season from him. We were talking about Norby as a potential Orioles Minor League Player of the Year award winner. And so much has been made about, you know, Colton Kowser's season and his ability to get all the way up to AAA Norfolk, it's equally impressive that Connor Norby is there, especially given how crowded the middle infield was for most of the year at AAA Norfolk and how many other guys are ahead of him at this point in the middle infield. We'll get to, you know, the Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg, Joey Ortiz conversation. But the fact that Norby has really held his own in that group with that caliber of prospect is really impressive. It's difficult to get promoted twice in a season. It's very difficult, and we've gotten used to it because we've seen so many guys like Gunnar Henderson 
get promoted multiple times in a season. But to start the year with high single-A Aberdeen and to finish with Norfolk is a hard thing to do, and I give Norby a lot of credit there. My honorable mention for second base, Cesar Prieto. 23 years old. Remember, he defected from Cuba. 273 average, 11 homers, a 718 OPS in 115 games. Now, he's currently playing in the Arizona Fall League, so the Orioles clearly want to give him a little bit more time. Um, and he played just 25 games with high A Aberdeen before he moved up to Bowie, and his numbers in Bowie were not as good as his numbers in Aberdeen. He clearly was above high single A, but adjusting to Bowie will be the next step for him. I imagine he's going to be sent back down to Bowie to start 2023 with the hope that he can get called up to Norfolk. Yeah, Prieto was always a really interesting case. I remember when he was initially signed, mm -hmm. he was known as kind of the best hitter in Cuba. He hit for a great average, had a great on-base percentage. But the question was, okay, what level of the minor leagues translates to the level of competition that he was facing in Cuba? Because it, it was really hard to tell how inflated those numbers were based on the kinds of pitchers that he was facing. And I think it's interesting that we're seeing him struggle a little bit at Bowie because that might give you an indication of what kind of competition he was facing. But Prieto obviously has a ton of potential. He has a really advanced approach at the plate, and I'm excited to see what he's able to do in Bowie next season. All right, we've got second base, third base. Third base is a pretty easy one. If you are going based on, if you are going based on pure positions and, and where they should be defensively, we had to fudge a lot of these positions. Yeah, not fudge, but Gunnar Henderson is a shortstop who you are very happy with playing third base. Yeah, so that's where I'm going to put him on this team, and Gunnar Henderson is the third base representative for this team. Yeah, he was Baseball America's number one prospect. This season, he was the Baseball America Minor League Player of the Year. So he is is more than good enough to be the Orioles representative for third base. There's really not much to say about his minor league season that hasn't already been said. He was unbelievable. He took a larger leap than anybody thought was possible and is now looking like a cornerstone of the major league team way quicker than we thought he would. Absolutely. Deserving at shortstop, deserving at third base, wherever you were to put this guy, he needed to be on the team. And he didn't graduate from the prospect list, according to MLB Pipeline. So he is to still technically the Orioles' number one prospect, which I thought that maybe by season's end, he would have been off that list. Grayson Rodriguez is number two. So Grayson is, is right behind him. Then I think you have Jackson Holiday three. So going into next season, maybe it'll take two games for Gunner to graduate, but as of right now, he is still a prospect, and you do start to think about next year, could Gunner Henderson be a Rookie of the Year candidate? Yeah, I, I think he has to be. He keeps his rookie status for next season, kind of gets right under the mark in terms of plate appearances. Yeah. So he's still a rookie next year, and I, I would go so far as to say that he's probably the front runner. Wow. That's I mean, he has to be. I mean, he's <laughs> the number one prospect in the Orioles system, but he's the number one, number two prospect in all of baseball, yeah. no matter which outlet you look at. So, yeah, I'd say he's the front runner. Wow. We'll save that conversation for closer to next Pinned. season. Pinned. Uh, Kobe Mayo, I think, deserves a shout out as well. He had some injury that kept him out for a couple months, but he did come back from that injury and finish the season with double A Bowie. I think a lot of us were expecting Kobe Mayo to hit the ground running a little bit faster than he did. 
And I think that his OPS was still over 700. He still finished the season pretty well. But I think we were expecting a, a season like we saw from Gunnar Henderson to also happen to Kobe Mayo. And it didn't happen yet, and that's okay. Because yeah. I, he's still very young, and I think that the future is still bright for this guy. It's a lot to expect when we consistently see guys overperforming in the Orioles minor league system. Maybe it's just a testament to how well Michael Elias and company have drafted these guys. But we are seeing players like Colton Kowser, Connor Norby, Gunnar Henderson. They are developing at a crazy rate. I mean, those guys are flying. Yeah. up the system right now, and it's not normal. Yeah. And we have to remind ourselves that just because it is seemingly normal in the Orioles farm system does not mean that it is normal overall. Yeah. I mean, once Colton Kowser was promoted to AAA, he became the second player in that draft class, period, to reach the AAA point. So, uh, third, excuse me. So it is not normal for guys to move up this quickly, and as high as our expectations are for this player development, we can't hold every player to the absurd standard that guys like Colton Kowser and Gunnar Henderson have set. Yeah, Mayo doesn't turn 21 until the beginning of December. Right. And he also hit 19 homers in 104 games between Aberdeen and Bowie. So still put up solid numbers. There just wasn't as much chatter about him as perhaps we were expecting because other guys were so good. All right, we've got second base. We've got third base. Shortstop is the next position here. And I got to give it to the Orioles minor league player of the year, and that's Jordan Westberg. 23 years old, hit 265 with 27 homers, too shy of Connor Norby, 852 OPS, 12 stolen bags. He's the Orioles' number five prospect. He's number 76, according to MLB Pipeline, in all of baseball. Started with double A Bowie and then had 91 games at triple A Norfolk. I think the Orioles, he was deserving, certainly, of the Orioles minor league player of the year. But I think the Orioles also wanted to give him a some acknowledgement because he didn't get the call-up to Baltimore by season's end, despite putting up pretty impressive numbers in the minor leagues. And he saw Gunnar Henderson, who is a couple years younger than him, get the call-up before he did. And that's, of course, I'm sure he was happy for Gunnar Henderson, but that is probably a, a source of some frustration because you want to get the call-up as soon as possible and you want to be contributing to the big league team. So I think the Orioles, in part, wanted to give... Jordan Westberg this award to say, hey, we acknowledge that you had an incredible season in the minor leagues, and we don't think you're that far off. Yeah, it was somewhat surprising that he won that award when Gunnar Henderson wins Baseball America's Minor League Player of the Year award. But as you mentioned, I think there was more than just the play on the field that went into that award. I think the Orioles, as Matt Blood talked about a little bit, were very pleased with what they saw from Westberg, not only on the field, but off the field as well. And Gunnar Henderson himself has talked about the fact that he's learned a, a lot from Westberg because when yeah. they got to pro ball together, Westberg had played at a big college program at Mississippi State and Gunnar Henderson was coming from high school. So Henderson was able to learn a lot from Westberg and I'm sure probably a lot of the maturity that we see from Henderson is due at least in some part to the things that he has learned from kind of an older, almost a veteran presence in Jordan Westberg, who has just been playing at a high level of baseball for a longer time than Henderson. And with Westberg, even though he doesn't get the call this year, again, this is another podcast that we'll talk about, but I think he is very close to the major leagues, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see him on the opening day roster. And he's our shortstop for this team, but where he fits into the Orioles long term... That's a question for another podcast. Yeah. 
other prospects that deserve a nod here. It's an absolute crime that we couldn't have Joey Ortiz yes. on this list. I mean, we almost had to create a second category to fit in a prospect who hit 19 homers, had a 284 average, and an 826 OPS in 137 games between Bowie and Norfolk, and providing plus defense at shortstop. Plus, plus defense. Plus, plus defense from what we hear, and second base, and third base. Wherever he is going to fit into the Orioles long term, he is going to be at least a solid defender. And then you look at the 19 homers and the OPS over 800, and you think his ceiling could maybe be a lot higher than we're talking about. And that's why he ended the season with Norfolk. Yeah, in a conversation that I had with Mike Elias when he was looking at some prospects in Bowie. Yeah, flex. <laughs> uh, we, I mentioned Joey Ortiz, and, and this was around the stretch when Ortiz was getting back closer to being 100% healthy, and the bat was really coming along with the Bay Sox. And Michael Elias basically said, yeah, his defense is so good that if his offense comes close to matching that, he's somebody who could be a, a very big impact player and be a quick riser. And that's what we're seeing with Joey Ortiz. I mean, not he a had Johnny a, Riser. Not a Johnny Riser. He had a 967 OPS in 26 games at Norfolk, which is a, a kind of a small sample size. But it, it seemed like there was a week or two where we kept looking at the stats and we were like, wow, Joey Ortiz is really hitting well in Norfolk. Yeah. And then he just did it for the whole season. Yeah. Like the, the remaining 26 games, Joey Ortiz absolutely balled out. And he is so good defensively that if that OPS even gets worse by 100 points. <laughs> if he's at an 850 OPS, that's a really good baseball player. And again, the only knock on him is his speed. So he's not a true five-tool player. It's not like he has below average speed, 45 speed grade according to MLB Pipeline. So he's going to impact the game in so many ways, and maybe he doesn't need the speed. And we're, look, we're so used to seeing so many five-tool prospects on the Orioles farm system. Yeah, that's splitting hairs at that point. I mean, if that's almost looking for a knock on Joey Ortiz, where, like, yeah, the speed isn't great, but it clearly doesn't really impact his range at shortstop right. all that much. Just, just on the base pass. Yeah. It's, yeah, he might not steal that many bases, but it's fine. It So much of it is also being a good base runner, knowing when to right. go, no, that kind of stuff. If I ever name drop on this podcast, Brendan, I want you to, to say, oh, you dropped something. Just do, Can we start calling each other on that? Sure. Okay. <laughs> so anytime I name drop like that, please please do that. Okay, okay. sure. Um, all right. We got shortstop. Yeah. Should we move to the outfield? We should. Okay. We'll start in the corner and start in left field. Yeah. Here's another position that I kind of fudged because there are... This one was tough. There are a lot of corner outfield candidates and they kind of bounce around between playing left field, right field, center field in some cases. So I gave the left field starting job to somebody who played mostly right field yeah but played a little bit of left and that's Heston Kerstad and this is less because of his play on the field and more of the fact that Heston Kerstad is back playing baseball and that is incredible yeah he looked a lot better down the stretch he had an 851 OPS with a 309 batting average in his first 65 professional games which is amazing considering the fact that there were a full 27 months between his last game at the University of Arkansas and his professional debut. So Heston Kerstad for the perseverance and for the fact that he put up good numbers gets this spot as the starting left fielder on our all-prospect team. (laughs) 
despite not playing left field. Despite not really playing left field. That's okay. And I think that it's tough because so many of these outfielders play center field. Because yeah. that's where they are. It's it's a corner used. outfield award. Yeah. I think somebody who also deserves a nod here who didn't play left field, Dylan Beavers, deserves a yep. spot in the outfield. I don't know where, but, you know, because he bounced between left and center and right, and the yeah. Orioles had so many good guys that we're also going to mention. I don't want to give it away, but there are so many other good prospects in the outfield that deserve a nod here. But Dylan Beavers, to start the season with rookie ball, and to finish with Aberdeen, like a few of his counterparts, and hit 322 on the season in 23 games, uh, did not homer, unfortunately. And that was something that we thought we'd see a lot more of, was the power. But he hit for average. He got on base. And I think that the work that they've done on his swing has clearly already shown. And I think that you give him a full off season of continuing to work on that, his mechanics and such, I think we could see another jump from Dylan Beavers, who's the Orioles' number eight prospect. He's higher than Connor Norby and Heston Kerstad. Yeah, and you really just see the tools yeah. with Dylan Beavers. I mean, you go to watch him play, and it's it's just loud tools. Yeah. Like, the speed is pretty remarkable for a guy his size. The fielding is really, really good. And as you mentioned, the adjustments that he's made at the plate in terms of his swing are really encouraging as well. Center field is perhaps the most loaded of any position, I think, maybe other than shortstop. This one, though, I had to give to Colton Kowser because Kowser, by all means, could have, just like Westberg, just like a lot of other guys, could have been the Orioles' minor league player of the year. Frankly, we thought that he was the front runner coming into the awards being announced because he hit 278 with 19 homers and 847 OPS, 18 stolen bases in 138 games. He was another guy that got two promotions over the course of the season. Went from high single-A Aberdeen to double-A Bowie to triple-A Norfolk, and he struggled for his first couple weeks in Norfolk, but then by the end of the season, he was hitting 300 with four homers in his last 17 games. So he was figuring some stuff out, and frankly, he is somebody that we are going to talk about a lot this offseason when it comes to the 2023 season. Where does he fit? He played the majority of his games in center field. They clearly think he can play center field long-term. The Orioles have a center fielder of the future. Could he be a corner outfielder? How close is he really to the big leagues? All of these questions, I think, are now at the forefront of our minds considering how good he was this past year. Yeah, and again, it's kind of funny to look back at the fact that Colton Kowser was not good in Aberdeen yeah. to start the year. And I remember sitting on this podcast talking about our concern level for Colton Kowser because he just wasn't hitting the ball well yeah. at single A. And now here we are talking about him as somebody, again, who could have won the Orioles minor league player of the year and gets all the way up to AAA Norfolk. I think he at least starts next season in AAA Norfolk. I would be shocked if he makes the opening day roster. And we need to see him, you know, imp continue to improve at that level because, as you mentioned, struggled a little bit there. But Colton Kowser, from everything we saw this year, it is, I, I think he outperformed expectations, yeah. really. And I think he jumps into probably a top 50 prospect in baseball. Well, he's the Orioles' number four prospect. According to MLB Pipeline, he's number 40. Yeah. And frankly, you look at his numbers and you look at this five-tool potential, he could be higher than that. Yeah. I think that some people think that the national outlook is lower on him than probably internally the Orioles are. Honorable mention here, this is a guy, again, we could have put in left or right, but he played 51 games in center. It was almost a 50-50 split, and that's Hudson Haskin. 
He's 51 games in center, then about 25 in left, 25 in right. Uh, 23 years old, 264 average, 15 homers, 821 OPS, and 109 double-A games. I don't know how he didn't get promoted because he started the season with double-A. He had an 821 OPS, and he never got the call up to triple-A Norfolk. Again, the Orioles are have so much more information on these guys because of analytics and because of the trackers that they have in the ballpark and because they just have so much more info than we do. We are going off of significantly less data. However, the counting numbers, the eye test, looked like he was a triple-A player by season's end, but he finished the year with Bowie. Again, I think it's just a case where you want Hudson Haskin to be getting consistent at-bats, which is probably going to happen more often in double-A Bowie. As the season went along, I think the case got stronger, at least at the beginning of the year. The outfield was pretty much, I mean, you had Taron Vavra playing outfield, Kyle Stowers, Robert Newstrom, Yusniel Diaz, DJ Stewart. There were a lot of outfielders that you don't necessarily need to take priority over Haskin. And I think as the season yeah. went along and guys like Vavra and Stowers got promoted, even Yusniel Diaz had you know, a very small taste of Major League Baseball. I think that's where it becomes more of a question of why Haskin didn't get promoted. But as long as he's getting consistent reps somewhere, I think he's probably in AAA next year at some point, if not starting the season there. So we'll see what happens with Hudson Haskin. Kind of a guy that gets forgotten about a little bit, lost in the shuffle. His swing is also really weird, Yeah, but it's it works. So what do I know? But apparently the Orioles... Clearly, there is some reason that they're doing this. They they yeah. didn't just they didn't just forget about him, even though a lot of fans may have forgotten about him. So clearly, they think that Colton Kowser was more ready for the jump, despite starting the season in Aberdeen, and despite being a little bit younger than Hudson Haskin. And Haskin doesn't have the highest ceiling, of course. He's in the twenties in terms of the Orioles' prospect rankings, not in the top ten or five. So the expectations are not as high. However, I still would like to see him get some AAA action next year, similar to a Robert Newstrom. You know, you're not going to expect the world from this guy, but maybe he can surprise you and give him the opportunity in AAA Norfolk next year to put up some numbers. Right. All right. Corner outfield, final uh, right field. Did you squeeze anybody here that is I not? Put a, I put a center fielder there, but <laughs> yeah. that, that's just kind of the state of the Orioles' outfield prospects at this point because so many of them are talented center fielders yeah. who – you just kind of need to go play a corner outfield. It's kind of a similar thing to the infield where Joey Ortiz, Jordan Westberg, Gunnar Henderson, it's like, okay, go play second base and third base because we have a lot of good shortstops. But my winner here in right field is Judd Fabian. He was, as advertised coming out of the draft, an incredibly advanced approach at the plate, was hardly striking out. His strikeout to walk ratio was fantastic. Had a good amount of power. OPS over 1,000, 333 batting average on the year, was a great defender, showed off a ton of speed in the outfield. Again, it, it's almost surprising that Judd Fabian fell as far as he did in the draft for the Orioles to be able to scoop him up, and he looks, again, as advertised coming out of Florida. Absolutely, and a little bit older. He's 22, so... Yeah, not that he should be performing this well, right. but you would expect somebody who put up numbers like he did in college to have this kind of approach at the plate once he gets into the minor leagues. Yeah, so a lot of top performers in terms of the outfield that deserve mention here, but yeah, squeezing Fabian in there, I'm not going to not going to 
quarrel with that. No. Let's get into pitchers. Sorry, what were you going to well, say? Well, I do have an honorable mention for right yeah. field as well, and that's John Rhodes. Yes. And this goes back to the conversation that we've been having a lot, which is to make sure you don't expect the absolute world out of every single prospect because it is not normal to see prospects excel as yeah. much as we've seen guys like Gunnar Henderson and Colton Kowser excel. John Rhodes didn't put up awesome numbers at Bowie once he got promoted, had an OPS under 600, but he got there in his age 21 season, which is really impressive. Ends up with a 737 OPS on the year between Aberdeen and Bowie. He is now just barely 22 years old, and like I said, did struggle in his 25 games in Bowie, but really encouraging that John Rhodes is at AA and yeah. is going to have the chance to hopefully improve a lot next season in his age 22 season at AA Bowie. That's that's probably ahead of schedule for John Rhodes. I'm just upset he can't be Colton Kowser's roommate anymore. I know. Because he doesn't get to watch all the Disney Plus shows, all the Marvel shows. He doesn't get to help out with the Lego Millennium Falcon. Well, you never it's know. It's a bummer. Maybe maybe they like zoom and watch some some movies. You never know. <laughs> you actually, yeah, it's it's funny. I think when Adley came through on a rehab assignment, he hung out with them and watched some Marvel shows with them. There so you go. Maybe you know. And John Rhodes, know. hopefully, if he gets up to the higher levels, will join the All Orioles Flow team because yes. John Rhodes has some fantastic hair. It's not as good as some other. I, I do think at some point on this podcast we need to break down. We need to have a hair tournament. Yes. Because, I mean, there are some pretty unbelievable flows at the major league level at this point. And I think some minor league guys like John Rhodes, yeah. whether they're it's, challenging. Whether it's a, a team full of them right. like this, whether it's a draft. Would you make an all-hair team? Would you make a, a yeah. hair bracket where you have to seed them? Let, let us know I think how it, we should seed them. The hair. thing is they have such good hair across the diamond that you could almost make a team. You probably could. Out of it. But, yeah. you know, first base is probably a little... Ryan Mountcastle's a little lack in there, so yeah, grow it out, Ryan. Yeah, come on, let's let's get the flow running. Now is the time to start because you only got right. Your spring training's right around the corner. Start not cutting that hair. All right, starting pitcher. Now this is not as deep a category as we maybe would have hoped. Grayson Rodriguez headlines this category, but he missed several months with an oblique strain. Then you have a lot of guys who put up pretty good, not eye popping numbers in the minor leagues. So Gray Rod. Definitely deserves a spot on this group. 262 ERA, 13 strikeouts per nine. Laughably high. Whip under one in 17 starts between Aberdeen, Bowie, and Norfolk. Remember, he started the season with Norfolk, made about 11 starts there, suffered the injury, had to work his way back up to Norfolk. So he had a 209 ERA in those 11 starts prior to the oblique injury, and then it was just a matter of building his innings back up before he got back to the Tides. So he deserves to be on this list, despite not making all that many starts, simply because the ERA is so ridiculous. And before the injury, he was by far the best pitching prospect in all of baseball. And I will say, unfortunate that he is on this team, because if Grayson Rodriguez doesn't get injured, then he probably gets the call to the bigs, yeah. and he is in a Kyle Stowers, Taron Vavra category of, yeah, they were great in the minors when they were there, but didn't spend enough time there. Yeah. So, unfortunately, Grayson Rodriguez makes this team because he wasn't able to make it up to the big leagues this year. Uh, I don't think he will be on this team next season. <laughs> I, 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 I have a sneaking feeling. Yeah. 
Uh, Drew Rom is the next guy on this list. And now his numbers are not ridiculous, especially the ERA is not ridiculously low. 443 ERA, high strikeout rate, almost 11 Ks per nine, 1.47 whip, not excellent. In 27, sorry, 26 games, 25 starts, and 120 innings pitched between Bowie and Norfolk. He had a 481 ERA in, in uh, Bowie, was promoted by mid-August. But then you look at his age. He's 22 years old, he's a lefty, and he's somebody that the organization clearly felt was ready for the jump to Norfolk by mid-season. By, really, August was when he was promoted, despite that ERA not being very high, or not being very low, excuse me. I think he has work to do, certainly, but for him to be all the way up in Norfolk at age 22 is ahead of the curve. Yeah, again, it's it's kind of the John Rhodes conversation where maybe the numbers weren't amazing, but it's impressive that he is here at the age that he is at. Yeah. And Drew Rahm, kind of the second biggest name on this list, probably. A bit of a weird group of starting pitchers here, as you mentioned, Paul, because a lot of the top prospects at the beginning of the season are just pitching well in the majors. I mean, Kyle Bradish is at the major league level, so he's not on this, this list. Dean Kramer worked up from AAA Norfolk. He's not on this list. Mike Bauman, guys like that, probably the names that, you know, we were hoping would not be on this list are not on this list, which is encouraging, but it also makes us go down a little further to find some guys that had good seasons. We also saw some down seasons that I think we'll save for later podcasts because we saw Alexander Wells suffer an injury. He missed significant time. We saw Zach Lowther have a very difficult year, really didn't get much work, much good work up at AAA Norfolk. So um, there were other guys who kind of disappointed at times that we thought might be on this list. Have to give a nod to Ryan Watson because he was the Orioles minor league pitcher of the year. 344 ERA, 9.1 strikeouts per nine, a whip just over one in 27 games, 18 starts between Bowie and Norfolk. He was promoted to Norfolk by late August, but then was only used out of the bullpen. I wonder if that was partly due to the Orioles wanting to lower his innings because he had pitched so much, and also because they were probably a little scrunched in terms of the rotation by season's end in Norfolk. So I imagine that they're going to use him as a starter in Norfolk to start 2023. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question with Watson, which we'll try to monitor next season because he was a reliever at Auburn in college. So maybe the starting in Bowie was the Orioles saying, okay, let's see if he can do this. And then maybe he's just better suited for the bullpen. And that's what we saw at AAA Norfolk. Or like you said, maybe they just wanted to limit some innings and Watson becomes a starter again in AAA Norfolk. Maybe they want him to be a long reliever at the big league level. Maybe that's how they see him projecting. So maybe he starts, but only gets three or four innings. I think there's a lot of possibilities for Watson and I think it's important that he has the flexibility to go back and forth between the bullpen and the rotation next member of this group is a recent addition to the Orioles top 30 prospect list according to MLB pipeline and that's Justin Armbruster 23 years old 385 ERA 9.7 K's per nine a whip over one 26 games, 22 starts between Aberdeen and Aberdeen and Bowie. And frankly, I don't know if we've ever n- mentioned his name on this podcast before. Uh, and that's our bad. He's 2021 12th round pick out of University of New Mexico. Big dude, six foot four. Apparently got a fastball that could consistently be plus in the future, according to MLB Pipeline, and touches 97 on occasion. He's got a slider and cutter with a developing changeup. So somebody with 
a high ceiling who, again, somebody probably is not discussed enough. But prospects like that come out of the woodwork on occasion. I remember Bradish was not viewed nearly as highly as a prospect when he came over in the Angels trade. And yet, he turned out to be the best of that four-man group so far. So, sometimes these guys flash a little bit in the minors. They don't put up eye-popping numbers, but they turn out to be quality players. Yeah, and that's usually the case with pitchers who aren't picked within the first few rounds. I mean, we've seen the Orioles under Mike Elias over the past few seasons. They'll go for pitchers in rounds, you know, 8 through 12, whatever it might be, and you're looking at guys that just have potential stuff. And Arm Brewster seems to be a pitcher with just, you know, potential stuff. You like the frame. You like the upside with the fastball, like you mentioned. So maybe the ceiling is there with Arm Brewster, and maybe the Orioles were able to find something later on in the draft that was encouraging enough, and, and we're starting to see the numbers. Another guy who came over via trade, and that is Gene Pinto, 21 years old. He put up a 3.83 ERA, 10 strikeouts per nine, in 24 games, 19 starts with Aberdeen. It was the Jose Iglesias trade that he came over in, and Garrett Stallings was also a member of that trade. Garrett Stallings did not have a good year nope. by any stretch. Gene Pinto, pretty solid year. Now, he spent the entire season with Aberdeen. He's just 21 years old. I think that is an exciting uh, development for him to be with Aberdeen pitching regularly at that age. But, again, he has a ways to go. He's not a top 30 prospect, but got to give him a nod for the 2022 season he had. Yeah, kind of the opposite there with Pinto. He doesn't have the highest ceiling, at least most people think, because of his frame yeah, in small. large part. He's a very short guy and doesn't really seem like he would be you know, throwing gas as much and just doesn't really have the ceiling because of that frame. But he's been able to get a lot of strikeouts, which has kind of been unexpected. And Nothing wrong with the short king. No, not at all. And we've seen short pitchers be successful at the big league level. So, you know, obviously not to write off Gene Pinto just because the ceiling might not be as high as people think because of the frame. Another guy who deserves a mention here, I already listed my five, but... Got to give a shout-out to Zach Peak, who unfortunately had his season end early, and he underwent Tommy John surgery uh, at the beginning of August. But before that, age 24 season with Bowie, 357 ERA, 7.9 Ks per nine, made just 11 starts. He was a number, another member of that trade with the Angels that sent Dylan Bundy the other way. Unfortunate that he had that season-ending surgery. I think perhaps with that surgery being in August, he could miss all of next year, if I had to guess but somebody to keep your eye on once he returns from injury. Yeah, if Peak has a healthy season, maybe he makes this rotation. Another guy I want to mention, Peter Van Loon. Yeah. Did have 24 games. 14 of them were starts, so he was kind of a tweener like Ryan Watson where he was kind of a starter, kind of a bullpen arm. Had a 325 ERA in Aberdeen, a whip of 1.263. Good strikeout numbers as well. Started one of the Aberdeen Championship games in that series, so Peter Van Loon, another solid season. All right, you had the bullpen. I did. Three members of the bullpen. Three members. First one being Nick Vespi. I know he was, again, kind of not a prospect because we saw him in the big leagues a good amount, but he pitched a lot in Norfolk, one of the most frequent pitchers that we saw. He had 26 appearances and, uh, and didn't allow a run. <laughs> not one. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's... Pretty unbelievable What's, to go through have his you calculated stats. Calculated that ERA? Uh, that would be zero. Oh, okay. Got yeah, it. yeah. Uh, Twenty-eight and two-thirds innings, 
without allowing a run, striking out 36 and walking five. (laughs) He allowed 12 hits, and his strikeout-to-walk ratio was over seven. Yeah. Incredible That's ridiculous. The problem was, in the big leagues, stats were not quite as good. ERA was not zero. (laughs) But his ERA in Norfolk, I mean, he is the prime example of what else could he possibly do at AAA Norfolk to say, hey, I should be in the big leagues. He just needs to put up some better numbers in the big leagues. And obviously those AAA numbers are very, very encouraging. 410 ERA in the big leagues in 25 games. I think also... Not terrible. Not terrible. And he was victim to the fact that the Orioles were constantly churning and looking for fresh arms. Because if a guy pitched two innings of relief or an inning of in a third and you know a couple games in a row, they would send him back down because he had options and they wanted to get a fresh arm. So I think that, unfortunately, he was a victim to that. The other thing with Vespi, doesn't throw very hard. I mean, yeah. it's rare that he hits 90 miles an hour with his fastball. So he is very deceptive, and he relies a lot on off-speed, and that can work, but you got to be very careful because he can get hit very hard if you're missing your spots. Right. Second bullpen arm goes to Noah DeNoyer. Mm-hmm. He had six games in Aberdeen, 14 in Bowie, 289 ERA, high strikeouts guy at about 12.5 per nine innings had a whip under one, and wasn't walking a ton of guys as well. Had a a 2.1 walks per nine number. So Noah DeNoyer, a really solid season, ends the year at Bowie. We'll see if he's able to get up to Norfolk next year. The problem with relievers also is that if they're a reliever in the minor leagues, especially at the lower levels, that tends to bode not as well for their future as as opposed to if they were a starter. Because typically you put your best arms in the starting rotation in the lower levels of the minors. And maybe when they get up to AAA Norfolk, then you're starting to say, all right, they're probably not good enough to be a starter. Let's put them in the bullpen. But for them to be relievers that early in their career, again, it's typically, not always, but typically it means that the Orioles aren't quite as high on them internally as they are with some other pitching prospects. But look, we saw Felix Bautista was a reliever pretty much throughout the minors when he made all those jumps in 2021. And that's worked out pretty well. So maybe they see just not as many pitches, but they see a few plus pitches that they can work with and say, all right, let's keep him as a reliever now and work with him. Yeah, speaking of a minor league reliever with ridiculous strikeout numbers, Xavier Moore Mm -hmm. in Aberdeen somehow only pitched in Aberdeen. Again, this is one of those decisions that we don't have all of the information, so we can't say why a guy got promoted versus didn't. We're just looking at the numbers And the numbers for Xavier Moore in Aberdeen, 30 games with a 136 ERA, did have a a whip of one, which is kind of surprising for an ERA that low. But then you look at the strikeout numbers. (laughs) 15.8 strikeouts per nine. He's almost striking out 16 dudes per nine innings. The walk number's a bit high at over four walks per nine. Don't know which reliever that reminds you of, Felix Bautista. But 58 strikeouts in 33 innings for Xavier Moore, Paul. That's both the strikeout and walk ratio are reminders of Felix Bautista. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure Bautista had like 15 His walks were worse, though. Yes, yes. I mean, Felix Bautista was walking like seven dudes per nine inning. I think, yeah. I mean, I think his strikeout numbers were right around there. But his walk numbers, we were saying... He can't get that under control. How can he be a big league reliever? And then he did. And then it worked out quite well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that we'll see in terms of his stuff. Again, it's difficult with these guys that aren't in the top 30. 
Um, and we, frankly, aren't paying as close attention to some of these relievers as we right. are with some other players, but some intriguing names on that list. Yeah. But, Brendan, what team would be complete without its manager? We had to have a manager of the all-prospect team. We're going to give it to Roberto Mercado. The winner of the Count Ripken Senior Player Development Award this year with High Single A Aberdeen. This guy was the dean of a high school 12 months ago. And he got the job with the Orioles full-time, left the school where he was also the baseball coach. Now, it's not like he was just the baseball coach of a high school team. He had a little bit more on his resume before he got that job. He coached on the Cape from 2014 to 2021, won a lot of games with those teams, this year, he led a the, the Aberdeen Ironbirds to a cumulative 78-54 and 54 record for a 591 win percentage, second best in their league. They beat the Brooklyn Cyclones in the first round, then came within one win of taking home a championship. And some of the prospects that he managed over the course of the season, some of the guys that went through Aberdeen over the course of 2022, Colton Kowser, Connor Norby, Kobe Mayo, Heston Kerstad, Dylan Beavers, Cesar Prieto, Judd Fabian, so many guys he got to work with personally. And when we're talking about these prospects, he had a hand in almost all of these guys because they're all stopping through high single-A Aberdeen. So it's fascinating to see, I'm sure from his perspective, just the range of prospects that got to he got to start the season with and he got to end the season with. Yeah, and a really important role this season for, you know, a few mentions, a few reasons, as you mentioned. I mean, the Heston Kerstad situation was something that I'm sure the Orioles had a plan for, but that's something you have to really manage as the former number two overall pick who is coming back from a very serious health condition, and you have to figure out how to manage his playing time. And as you mentioned, he's one of the first ones to get the new draft class, yeah. which is incredibly important. And at a level that low, when you're looking at AAA Norfolk and Buck Britton and his responsibilities, a lot of that is getting a guy ready for Major League Baseball and getting him ready to take the next step. Not to say that's not important. It very much is. But when you're looking at Aberdeen and the role of Roberto Mercado, not only is he trying to manage a baseball team, but a lot of the time it's young kids who just got drafted or in the case of Cesar Prieto, somebody who just came to the United States is trying to acclimate to life, to culture. And Roberto Mercado has a really big role in not only shaping them as baseball players, but shaping them as people. And these, for a lot of these guys, remember, it's their first professional job. Right. I mean, these guys come, some of the younger guys, of course, come from overseas, but you're talking about, you know, Guys like Dylan Bieber and Beavers and Judd Fabian, guys that were in college a few months ago, and then they're sent, you know, for Beavers' case in California. Then he's sent to Florida for a few weeks. Then he's sent to Delmarva. Then he's sent to Aberdeen. And it's a whirlwind for these guys. Not only do they have to acclimate themselves, find out where they're living, find out what they're eating, where they're, what they're, where they're staying, all yeah. this stuff, they have to also put up numbers and be expected to produce. It, sometimes we take it for granted because it is so difficult to do. And having a mentor like that, somebody who clearly knows how to approach people between the ages of 18 and 22 right. years old, it's a skill. And he clearly has mastered it. So, Roberto Mercado is our manager of this team. And just quickly to run through the all-prospect team one more time, you have Samuel Basaya behind the plate, T.T. Bowens at first base. I got to get down to uh, what the other T is. 
I guess it's we'll never not know. O'Neal. It's a mystery. Maybe it's Terry Toneal. <laughs> I mean, we got to figure that out. All right. Jordan Westbrook's the shortstop. Gunnar Henderson's the third baseman. In the outfield, we put Kerstad, Kowser, and Judd Fabian. Grayson Rodriguez, Drew Rahm, Ryan Watson, Justin Armbruster, and Gene Pinto as your rotation. And then Nick Vespi, Noah DeNoyer, and Xavier Moore as the relievers. Congratulations. You are members of the Masson All Access podcast. All prospect team. Your reward is a crisp high five <laughs> if we see you sometime. Absolutely nothing, unfortunately. Uh, uh, well, let's not say nothing. I mean, that high, high five, five is... Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, to, to bring back a, a story of uh, a prospect that we were discussing earlier, John Rhodes. Yeah. When I went to see him in Aberdeen for an, in- for an interview... Crisp high five? No, I didn't know that he had broken his wrist. Oh. And uh, I went to shake his hand, and he was like, oh, oh, uh... I- and I looked at his wrist, and it was black and blue, and I was like, oh, no, I am so sorry. So Oof. I did not injure him further. He came back. Well, he good. Played. Yeah, but always got to be aware of who's got a broken wrist. Have to. Um, that does it for our prospect <laughs> uh, list and our all-prospect team, but we did talk to Roberto Marcano when he came to Oriole Park at Camden Yards about a week ago. Here is that interview with the Orioles' Cal Ripken Sr. winner of the Player Development Award. We're joined now by Roberto Mercado, who is the winner of the Orioles Minor League Player Development Award. Congratulations, Roberto. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What a year it was for you guys. You started the year with this talented group of guys with Colton Kowser, with a Connor Norby, with a Kobe Mayo. You ended the year with another group of very talented but very different guys in the 2022 draft class with like Max Wagner and Dylan Beavers. What was it like getting to manage probably two or three different teams as the season went along. Yeah, it was exciting, um, you know, having the amount of talent we have in this organization, you know, passing guys along, hey, get up to double A, that's obviously the goal. And um, just the amount of talent we have here is just absolutely amazing. And their work ethic is unbelievable. I mean, guys come to work every single day. They've been ingrained in their head, I guess, when they were down in Florida, those young guys came in came right in and produced and did really well for us and you know again try to challenge those guys you know make it make them uncomfortable in a lot of situations so but yeah it was like three different teams throughout the year and we obviously had success on the field with the wins but at the end of the day it's about them getting better so yeah it was a great great year no it's really interesting that you're trying to challenge guys try to make them uncomfortable as Mm -hmm. a manager how are you trying to balance the wins and losses versus going, hey, maybe there's a left-handed hitter that we would normally take out of the lineup, but I want to see how he performs against a left-handed pitcher. How do you handle those kinds of situations? Yeah, um, at the end of the day, it's about their development. So Heston Kerstad's a left-handed hitter. He's got a bad second, and I don't care what left-handed pitcher is for, you know, who's throwing for them. He's right. going to play. He needs those at-bats, and I think that's what's important is give those guys as much exposure. And, and even, um, you know, on their – the day they're not in the starting lineup. You know, that was a big thing we talked about all year is that your day off is Monday. So, hey, you may come in in a pinch hit spot in the eighth inning because that may be a situation that happens when you get to Camden Yards one day. So try to give those guys as much of those pressure situations as possible to get just have them prepared. Roberto, you're a former dean of students mm-hmm. at a high school. I'm sure you're used to pulling kids aside and giving them a talking to. Did you ever have to go into dean mode with some um, of these guys? A couple <laughs> you don't time, have to call them out. Yeah, no, a couple times here and there, just minor little things, but um, get them back on track and they're fine. You know, I said this before. It's, you know, they're the golfer. We're we're kind of the caddy, so we're just there to support them and give them a little nudge here and there. So, but a great group of guys and. The culture that was created in the clubhouse was all about the players. I mean, they did a tremendous job. You know, we, like you said, we got a lot of guys coming in and out, and everybody was welcomed with open arms. And I think that's uh, that's what it's about. You know, want to make sure guys feel comfortable, 
and the guys did a tremendous job of that. How do you feel like that teaching background has helped you? Because obviously as a manager, it's you know kind of similar things. Yeah, it definitely has. Just organizing things and making sure everybody gets what they need. You know, our pitching coach needs this, our hitting coach needs this. And, you know, as a dean of students, you have to be able to manage different personalities and making sure everybody gets what they need and, you know, kind of got to give and take a little bit. So um, it's a little maneuvering, but um, I think my background there with just dealing with different people from different backgrounds um, definitely has, has helped me with this position. I'm fascinated by you saying that making guys uncomfortable actually helps at, yeah. in instances when they get new information that they're probably not used to hearing. Mm -hmm. Probably guys who had such incredible success in college and high school, and then they come here and maybe they struggle a little bit. Yeah. Why do you think it's important for them to get information that maybe at times they don't want to hear or get critiques that they're not prepared for? Yeah, it's, it's not even the information. It's more about putting them out there and seeing what they can do, whether it's, you know, uh, a hoppy fastball that's 97 we're putting in the cage and you know we're trying to prepare guys not just for that game that night at seven o'clock we're trying to prepare them to play here at Camden Yards so I think that's where that uncomfortable and finding that balance of hey what does this guy need hey he needs a little nudge let's get him let's challenge him a little bit more today so just finding that balance of you know not just feel good and hey I feel great today and I'm going to continue doing that no we want to prepare you for seven o'clock but also to play here in Camden one day. So we mentioned this year's draft class and, you know, when they get up to Aberdeen, it's one of their first introductions to the organization. Do you kind of feel that weight of being at a, a lower level and feeling like, you know, you've got to get those guys prepared for what this organization is about and what they should be doing going forward? I think they had that as soon as they got drafted and were in Florida. They kind of they had that work ethic and kind of ingrained of what the expectations are. You're going to be challenged here. And um, they came up and they came up and did a great job for us in a short amount of time. I'm glad they were able to come for, I think it was about two or three weeks. Or I want to say two weeks before the uh, the playoffs. And those guys were key pieces in what we did in the postseason as well. And, you know, kind of the same thing. Challenge those guys and continue to, to challenge them. There was a game that I went to, I believe it was in Bowie, and I'm walking through the crowd and I saw you there. Yeah. And I thought, this is strange. Yeah. You're usually managing a game yeah. at this point, but I think at that point your game had been called due to rain. Yeah. And you made the drive to go see the Bowie Bay Sox, which is yeah. not an easy, quick drive. Yeah. Why did you feel the need to on a oh. night off to go see them? I just wanted to see these guys, support those guys, you know, um, you know, kind of follow them. I still keep in contact with those guys, and that's what it's about. It's the great relationships that uh, that are created in the game of baseball, and I just wanted to go out there and just check on those guys and see how they're doing. And you know, it was it was great. It was great to see all those guys. Missed them, and like I always said, you know, hate to see you go, love to see you leave, and. Uh, but it was great to catch up with those guys. That's awesome. On our off nights, we are not to be found in the ballpark. <laughs> I can say that much. So you mentioned the importance of family. And before you were talking about a guy like Cesar Prieto, doesn't, yeah. you know, doesn't speak much English and how important it was for him to be able to come and, and feel like he was in a family atmosphere. How important was that for you to be able to communicate with him and bring him in? Yeah, and I mean, it's not just me. It was the entire staff and as well as the players. And first year in professional baseball, you know, it's kind of like we were both kind of new to this thing and let's, hey, let's try to figure this thing out together and um he was awesome and work ethic and at times I got to be like hey really tough on himself you know wants to be perfect every time and um you know find different ways to like hey it's it's okay and then the support from the uh entire staff and all the players it was just very welcoming and like I said those guys did a tremendous job and we had a couple guys that are a little bit older that um kind of took over to clubhouse and kind of handled that part of it and 
but yeah, it was it was a great experience. One guy I do want to ask about Heston Kerstad yeah. because that was such a unique situation with him working his way back in slowly, yeah. being with some younger guys. What was he like and to deal with in the clubhouse and to put in the lineup every day? And what was he like on the field when you got to see him? He was awesome, man. He was a, he was a great great guy, great teammate. Worked his tail off. You know, again another one that kind of get him feeling uncomfortable at times and then we're going to switch some things up and finding ways to make sure give him that little nudge but um great teammate and did a tremendous job for us you know it's funny everybody talks about starting a little bit slow here and there and he picked it up and if you saw last night he had a great day in the Arizona Fall League yeah. as well so keeping it up and we got three more guys in the starting lineup tonight so it's great to see the great things that are happening in this organization. Now, how did you feel like you had to manage him specifically with, you know, the draft stock of, of being that high first round pick where maybe you had to help him temper his expectations? What what was that like? Um, just like any other player, I didn't feel like I had to treat him any different than anybody else. Um, came to work every day, worked his tail off, and he was in a lineup. We know he was going to bat second. I didn't care if it was a lefty or a righty up. He's a great talent, and, um, you know, it, it was great to see him uh, the second half of the year with us. You had some great teams in your league. I think the hardest thing you probably had to deal with was the spotted lantern flies in yeah, Aberdeen. Yeah, that was tough, I, man. The trips that we went <laughs> down there near the yeah. end of the year, that must have been the most annoying thing to deal with. And you know what? And we were there were a ton of them by the batting cages. So uh, I asked Jack for a favor. If there's any way we can get an exterminator or something, and he actually did. He came through. Wow. And um, they were gone for about five days, and then they came back. <laughs> so I told Jack as and when we were in Brooklyn, I said, Jack, hey man, if we if we win this, we get back here. Um, we need another spray, and he took care of that for us. Cause <laughs> you see guys just swine away. It was almost like their activation. They're getting loose, just swatting these uh, lantern flies. So yeah, that was. Tough. Yeah. You got so close to winning a championship. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like next year you'll probably have a different group of guys, but do you feel like that might make you feel a little bit more hungry to go out and, and win another championship or get cl close to there? I'll be honest with you, no. At the end of the day, whatever group we have there, it's it's about their development. And you know what? If that translated translates into wins, which it did this year. Hopefully that continues. So that's that's the the main focus is have those guys have a great environment where they can learn and fail and be uncomfortable. And at the end of the day, if that translates to wins, then then great. But if not, at the end of the day, we want we want to call those guys in the office and, and send them off to Bowie. Now with players, we always talk about how important a playoff push might be. But as you mentioned, you're new to this thing too. Yeah. How was the playoff push valuable for you? It was great. Um, you know, just it's a different mindset managing because now you're trying to actually win the game. So right. just looking at matchups and, you know, our, our, our staff did a tremendous job. Uh, Ryan Gold did a tremendous job putting a scouting report together and all the other coaches kind of finding different ways we can find outs. And um, so it was different. You know, usually in the regular season, we kind of have a set. Hey, this guy's got to go here. This guy's got to go here. And so that was fun. It was exciting and it was great. I mean, we communicated really, really well, um, myself and the pitching coach and the entire staff. So. It was a fun year, man. I couldn't ask for a better first year in professional baseball. Absolutely. Well, we'll let you go, but you're in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. You're usually only 40 minutes up the road. Have you gotten to come down here, experience the restaurants? Do you have a certain spot I, you're going to? I don't know about certain spots. Um, I came down with my wife, actually, on an off day, oh, okay. another off day. Nice. But I came down <laughs> here, and uh, she'd never been to Camden Yard, so a beautiful ballpark. Yeah. Um, we didn't have a chance. We just ate like crazy here in the stands and, the, uh, <laughs> you know, have some some uh, baseball food here. But I have no idea. I need some advice from you guys when we're done with this. Tell we'll me where to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Roberto Mercado, winner of the Cal Ripken Senior Player Development Award. Roberto, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.